0: You know, we've got these three sites of supremacy that shape us in deep ways. I mean, the church too, the church has a history of denying hegemonic systems even though uh, Jesus himself was a disruptor to the status quo and to hegemonic systems. But, you know, the church is so conscripted into empire religion that it 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 itself is really hard uh, to disentangle it from, and then and then you've got higher education, the academy, which produces uh, knowledge, uh, but what kind of knowledge for whom? Who 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 are the recipients of that knowledge production? And so these three places, along with sort of the reigning government, uh, we've got ourselves into a real pickle. And and you know, and how do we? fight against these systems.
1: We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy folden Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates including doctorate of ministry and creative leadership master of arts and counseling certificates and chaplaincy studies and peace and justice ministries and much more most programs are offered fully online to learn more visit cbts.edu or search for central seminary kansas city our guest for this week's cbf podcast conversation is dr robin henderson espinoza Robin is a founder of Activist Theology Project, as well as a non-binary, transgender, and queer uh, Latinx activist scholar. Robin, thank you for joining the conversation.
0: It's good to be here. Thank you so much.
1: So uh, we were talking about before we started hitting recording, uh, obviously, you know, COVID has impacted all of us. Uh, Well, I wonder how it's impacted uh, your great work before we start diving into your great work.
0: Well... I'm no longer chasing airplanes every week, which is what I was doing in the before times, uh, traveling various places to speak and preach and be with people. Uh, And all of that has gone online. And so I speak to a computer screen every day.
1: It feels a bit like uh, what they were predicting of... uh you know the the movies of our childhood that eventually the computers will overtake us all so um so uh for those that aren't familiar with activist theology project um what would you want people to know about it
0: we're a project that helps connect the dots between theory and praxis and we do a lot of translating theory to action and theology to practice And I would want folks to know that we are committed to social healing. Uh, And so we believe that healing is political and therefore our theologies and ethics should also be political. So how do people
1: uh, get involved in in the work you're doing?
0: Well, uh, we... uh, have a podcast every week, uh, where we talk about pressing social concerns. And so you could certainly listen to our podcast. Uh, we're starting to convene people on our app, which you can find at www.atporch.com. And there we have a lot of different circles, uh, conversation circles where people get, can get plugged in. And we hope to build out the app a little bit more, uh, in the new year, uh, pending funding. Everybody needs funding to do these sorts of things. And then we're going to start hosting some retreats uh, in Montreat at the Montreat Retreat Center there in North Carolina. Um, And we're, we're going to host a fall retreat and a spring retreat to try to help get people talking about their stories and trying to live out their theologies, which is a big part of what my first book was about.
1: So you're a super uh, busy, busy person, you run this project, you guest lecture, you've written several books, you've got another one coming out soon, Uh, you travel, you speak, how do you decide what's the best audience to pontificate your wisdom and insight?
0: Well, I don't know that I would call it pontificating, I would call it being with people, Uh, And people desire belonging, and people want to know that there is a place for them. And whether it is being on faculty at Duke Divinity School or sabbatical replacements that I do, uh, everybody wants to know that they too belong. And a lot of times, uh, people don't know how to find belonging. I think we see the decline of the church as one of the primary indicators that people don't have belonging. And when I'm deciding on what gigs to do, or you know, where to spend my time or how to spend my time, not only do I siesta every day to make sure that I manage the stress, but I ask myself, how is it that I can create greater conditions for belonging? And belonging is really tied to flourishing. And so what I'm concerned about as a theologian and ethicist is how do we connect belonging and flourishing together so that when we are with people, and I mean really in relationship with people and practicing things like vulnerability, transparency, and honesty so that we can have intimacy in relationships. And I'm not just talking about sexual intimacy, but I'm talking about the real kind of intimacy that changes people, that helps people know that they matter and have a sense of belonging, that's what I'm asking myself. So when I give a lecture someplace or if I'm in the pulpit somewhere, and let me tell you, I spent a lot of Sundays in the pulpit last year, uh, preaching virtually over Zoom, that when I would write a sermon, I would write in such a way to invite people into places of belonging. And so that's the primary question that I'm asking when I'm considering my calendar and my travel schedule is how do we create conditions for belonging so that people can flourish?
1: And by the way, when I say pontificate, I mean that in the highest regard, because I've listened to some of your lectures before and I've been at events where you've spoken and, um, I found myself, um, writing uh, as fast as I possibly could <laughs> at everything you were saying. So well, thank you. Um, you know, in 2019, um, you released a book, Activist Theology, in which you wrote about the intersection of academia and activism. And you wrote, uh, activist theology is rooted in story, because without story, theory is just cloaked in a good, uh, good ideas. Story still changes hearts and minds, and we must invest in stories of our people and those who bear the brunt of the struggle and make the tangible turn to the everydayness of the story of struggle and those who live in the struggle outside of the ivory tower. Talk to us um, about the birthplace of this book from your studies as, as a PhD to your work within the community.
0: Well, uh, Fortress reached out to me and asked if I was working on something. And a lot of people don't know this story, which is why I tell it every chance I get, because people... Uh, people people think that you know books just emerge and in the case of activist theology I told Fortress yeah I'm working on something around revolution and becoming and I turned in I don't know how many thousands of words but I turned in a manuscript and they wrote back and they said this is not the book that we want and and I I said okay and they were like, there's too much academies in here. And, and activist theology is an academic bug, but it's not your traditional academic book. It's a bit of a crossover bug. So I I took the critique that what I had turned in was not what they wanted, and they weren't willing to publish what I turned in and I turned around and rewrote the entire manuscript from this place of conviction, from a place of story, from, from the place of if we want our theologies and ethics to matter in the world, then we have to be willing to pay attention and listen to story. And so I just started writing story. And some people s- still say that it's too academic and it's not for the layperson, person. Uh, but a uh, but a whole bunch of other people say this is exactly the book that I needed to make sense of our world. So the the birthplace really was uh, the birthplace of rejection of being told this is not the book that we want to publish, and you need to rewrite it. And then I worked with a really wonderful editor, Paul Lutter, who's a ELCA pastor, and he he worked with me to he said you know what do you want the book to be and I said well I think I want the book to be uh, rooted in story and these are the themes that I want to carve out and he said okay we'll write that story and so we worked together for several months and I essentially rewrote the book in about six months just writing as much as I could every day and and then the book you know, became what it is now. And, you know, we have a podcast sort of loosely based on the book and uh, there's an audio book out that I read that my audio engineer put together for me. And, and yet, and yet the birthplace of the book itself was being told, no, this is, this is not what we want to publish. Uh, There you have it. So you
1: often, talk about working in the borderland spaces of church, um, academy, and, and movements. What do you mean by this?
0: Well, I initially went to graduate school to become a scholar, but in 2008, many people know that not only was there a housing crisis uh, and, and the market shifted, but also the humanities, jobs in the humanities began to dwindle. And that actually never did recover. And I started my PhD in 2009 and finished in 2015 and graduated in 2016. And the the job market never did recover. And so I really had to become creative on how I was going to live out my vocational call uh, as theologian and ethicist. And early in my PhD program, I would be invited to come and speak to places to come do events and I I was thinking about this earlier at because I knew that I was going to be telling you some of my story and and I realized that um like I'm so Baptist that I did do you remember back in the day when they had um see you at the poll rallies yes <laughs> Yeah. So I was that kind of Baptist and and I've been doing public speaking since before I was in high school. And now, obviously, I was at a Southern Baptist church. And so uh, because I wasn't born with the right genitalia, I had to be creative on how I did public speaking. But I've been doing public speaking for a long time. And when I got into my PhD program, I would be invited to go and speak and and whatnot. And and that just continued to grow that by the time that I took my first faculty position in Berkeley, California, I was on the road more than I was in the classroom. And so I thought, well, if I can't get a full-time job teaching and teaching seminary students how to live out their call and vocation, then maybe I can do that in the public square. And so Um, I began to do what people often call public theology. I like to call it politicized theology and public ethics because I am really trying to help people be better and do better. And we can only do better and, and be better when we have the right ethical and theological frameworks from which to relate to ourselves and to each other. And so when I talk about being in the borderlands of the academy, the church and movements for justice, It really means doing this public kind of scholarship, this intellectual activism, this politicized theology and public ethics in the three sites of knowing. Um, The academy is a place of knowing. The church is a site of knowing and movements for justice are a site of knowing. They each three uh, share some epistemological commitments. But they are three very distinct epistemologies, I think, and ontologies. And therefore, they have three distinct sort of ethical frameworks out of which they derive meaning and practice. So that's a little bit about what I mean when I'm saying I'm working in the borderland spaces.
1: I'm going to hold off because I like... I started going down a lot of memories around see you at the pole uh, when you brought that up. So one of the more, uh, you know, fond memories of that is actually a kind of funny moment. Uh, I was leading the one. So I was also that kind of Baptist too.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I assigned scripture reading to different friends and um, <laughs> a friend of mine, got up to read and apparently her church didn't use abbreviations for books of the Bible. And so where I wrote the abbreviation for uh, Corinthians, she thought it was Colossians. And so she found Colossians uh chapter three and the verse 18 and started reading at CU poll and i went to a large high school like hundreds of, of people were there yeah started reading the wives submit to your husband text oh and it was gosh like, how, how do you stop somebody mid-scripture right. reading like you're reading the w- wrong one this has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning so um that, that's probably my my one memory i'll take away from see at the polls but yeah um Yeah, in the book, you write about the entanglement of three social institutions as becoming more important to dismantle to the um, hegemonic system of white supremacy and economic supremacy and Christian supremacy. Take us a little deeper there.
0: Well, um, we've got things like the church. We've got um, medicine which is the pathologizing system. I think that's where you're pointing toward uh, the church as sort of the moralizing site. Um, and then we've got, uh, let's see, the church, medicine, and I think I talk about education as who gets who gets to name what is knowledge. Um, and I may talk a little bit about the government there, but You know, we've got these three sites of supremacy that shape us in deep ways. I mean, when we go to the doctor, uh, we are submitting to a kind of authority that then we are shaped by Um, narratives about weight. uh, You know, a lot of doctors are not weight neutral. So um, we've got to, you know, come up with strategies to combat these toxic narratives, the church too, the church has a history of denying hegemonic systems, even though uh, Jesus himself was a disruptor to the status quo into hegemonic systems. But, you know, the church is so conscripted into empire religion that it it itself is really hard uh, to disentangle it from. And then and then you've got higher education, the academy. Which produces uh, knowledge, uh, but what kind of knowledge? For whom? Who 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 are the recipients of that knowledge production? And so these three places, along with sort of the reigning government, uh, we've got ourselves into a real pickle. And and you know, and how do we fight against these systems? How do we how do we do better and be better people when we ourselves? are so conscripted into these narratives that shape us every day. I mean, I think about where we buy our groceries or where we buy our coffee. Uh, How do we practice good economic behaviors, good economic practices, when we don't have the right kind of choices from which to choose? Um, We really need each other in this moment. And if I could just say one other thing before your next question, which is, relationships will save us and we can't depend on ideas or empty theologies or empty rhetoric but we really need we really need relationships which is why i think community and church are the best things we have on earth but we have yet we have yet to really come to terms with how to be church with how to be one another and as my colleague joe lumen talks about bringing heaven to earth that is really should be the vision of the church, bringing heaven to earth. And so in my work, in my collaboration work, that is what I try to do when I critique these systems is not just level a critique, but actually have a hermeneutic of suspicion and retrieval. How do we retrieve the things that are good? And is there any good in these systems? And I think the good thing that is in these systems is that we can have relationships and if we can invest in in you know better relationships more authentic relationships we might be able to save ourselves from ourselves but it's still yet to be determined
1: this podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative, This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry.
2: Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests
1: This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by the Youth Theology Network. They are a resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. As a mentor to high school students who are considering ministry, you know your work is important, but it can also be lonely and overwhelming. With YTN, you'll find the information you need for building or scaling your vocational discernment programs, as well as resources to help students take their next faithful step. To awaken what's possible for high school students in your life, please visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. So one of the major themes of the book uh, was on liberation and social change for marginalized communities, specifically transgender and queer people. And, and this is not just some ethereal concept for you as it's, it's a, a lived experience. So I wonder if you'll talk to us about how your experience has shaped the way that you approach your work uh, alongside marginalized communities.
0: Well, I, I think being a part of a marginalized community, I'm born of a Mexican woman, I'm a mixed race Latinx, my family migrated from Mexico, my mother's family did. and so being a part of marginalized communities and not just racially, but I'm also transgender and queer. And those are two different things for me, not one. Uh, And so I think that my embodiment, my embodied reality is one of marginalization. On top of all of that, I'm on the autism spectrum. And so I live with this invisible disability where my brain is Telling me to do one thing, but society says to do another thing, it can be very confusing for people around me sometimes, and and so I'm part of these multiply marginalized realities, and so I write from that place, and and if our theologies don't reflect our lived experience, um, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have a hard time achieving liberation, and so I just write from the place, right? I write from this embodied place of seeking of practicing of wanting of desiring liberation and I do that as best as I can and I try to do that in conversation which is why I love podcasts so much because we can actually be in conversation exchange ideas and imagine another possible future a sort of an otherwise future Uh, but we can only do that from our embodied place, from our lived reality, and so that's what I try to write about in the book, in, in both activist theology and my forthcoming book, which will be out in March 2022 from Broadleaf Books. It's all about bodies, embodiment, and democracy, and really seeing Embodiment and you know, like my own trans embodiment, my own queer embodiment, my own Latinx embodiment, my own autistic embodiment, how these shape my democratic practices. And when we get clearer on embodiment, we can get clearer on democracy, is my is my sense.
1: So, you know, one of the unfortunate byproducts of many churches exclusion of persons who are lgbtq plus is that many of these folks will never darken the door um, of a welcoming but not a farming church or a church that's not welcoming and we know that right. personal connection with people who are different than us psychologically and socially emotionally and spiritually challenge our worldview so how yeah. do we How do we expect our churches that are not theologically welcome to grow more open if they can't have shared human experiences with someone who, you know, for example, LGBTQ plus. So for thinking of faith leaders that might be listening to this, what are ways that they can uh, cultivate at least a sense of openness to create some uh, shared experiences with people who are very different from them?
0: You know, I think back... I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to tell a story. Uh, I hope it will resonate with folks and connect the dots a little bit. When I was in seminary, my my teacher and advisor who continues to be my teacher, Dr. Nancy Bedford, we were talking about LGBT inclusion, LGBT life, etc. And I myself was deeply closeted. I knew this thing about me, but I didn't know how to reconcile it with who I understood myself to be, which was also a Christian. And she said this to me, she said, if the eunuch could be baptized, that's enough reason for me to accept LGBTQ plus people. And her saying that was her way of saying, I accept you, which was deeply relational. It was embedded in scripture. And I think that that's one way that we can begin to befriend those who are otherwise than us um and we can look to scripture to see examples of how otherwise bodies were accepted and included and jesus himself accepted the outcast and i think that in many respects lgbt plus people are those otherwise and those outcast bodies and we have a chance right now we have a chance to uh, reclaim a future for them and we have a chance to not only befriend them but learn how to be our own best friend by befriending otherwise bodies And I think we can learn a lot when we bridge with difference, and difference is bringing heaven to earth. And so I have a lot of hope for us as as a human body to begin to accept people and begin to learn how to be our own best friends so that we can relate to others in a hospitable way. You
1: know, people are are being pushed out or they're leaving churches and denominations because the shrinking ability of church denominations to engage in honest, earnest, gracious discernment with with one another, Um, you know, with science and with scripture around um, issues of of inclusion and, and exclusion, you know, so... As you think about, and of course, you've talked about you're being Baptist, and of course, one thing Baptists are great at is we're great at just splitting and starting another thing. Right. So, you know, in your, in your thinking, in your leading, in your conversations, uh, what are some healthy ways you're seeing uh, at denominational levels churches from de- very different theological perspectives coming together to have shared conversation that's leading to some sort of, of progress and change?
0: Well, you know, last year in the in the wake of the state execution of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, we saw a lot of denominations wanting to have the conversation about race. But one of the things that often happens is that we create yet another binary of race being black and white, which makes people like me and other brown people invisible And one of the things that i think we can be doing as a practicing body of christ or as a church is learn to hold the complexity that is right in front of our faces and learn how to practice complexity with difference and so let's have the racial conversations let's have the economic conversations but let's do so with an attention to complexity. What I find is that systems as complex as they are, are not able to hold the complexity themselves. And that puts a real strain on whether or not we achieve justice and or, and we could talk about what is justice and whatnot. But basically, how do we practice little moves against destructiveness so that we can bring about heaven to earth and practice liberation in the small ways, right? I mean, I think it's about being faithful in the small things. And one of those small things that we can do is be attentive to complexity in our systems and not make yet another binary because another binary is capitulating to supremacy culture and acquiescing to white supremacist Both. Bull-
1: so uh, you wrote, the work of imagining a different future takes great skill and active participation in the practice of reparations and restorative justice to lay a solid foundation for change to materialize. Not only does this work require an active de-investment from privilege and supremacy culture, but it also requires the deep internal work that can result in transformative of, transformation of one's own self. Uh, take us a little deeper here.
0: Well, I think it's very simple. We change ourselves, we change the world. And small is all. Uh, when we, instead of focusing on, like I've never wanted to have a platform. I've never wanted to have a bunch of followers. And in fact, I'm very suspicious of having a lot of followers. And I really believe small is all. And so I focus on small swaths of people being in conversation and 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 always changing myself so that I change the world. And if we had that kind of orientation, instead of having an orientation to mass producing our work, which you know is runs in competition with capitalism and whatnot, if we can focus on small as all and if we can focus on just cultivating little moves against destructiveness, we might be able to achieve something. And that is really what I'm getting at when I, when I write about um, divesting and when I'm, when I'm writing about reparations and restorative justice. I mean, we really need practices of transformation and transformation happens in relationship. I mean, I just think about I think about a lot of the interreligious and inter, inter-faith work that is being done. That is largely done one-on-one and how we change hearts and minds, how we practice transformation is through and by and with relationship. And if I can just go back to something that I said in the very beginning, which is relationships will save us. and And, and that's a piece of wisdom that I have learned from theology and ethics over the past two decades, uh, relationships will save us. It and, and, and we don't yet know how to be in right relationship with one another because many of us are too concerned with doctrine and dogma instead of orthopraxis or right action. If we can be more aligned with the orthopraxis work over the orthodoxy work, We might be able to invest in the right kind of relationships, the right kind of transformation, the right kind of practice, and the right kind of liberation.
1: You alluded to your new book earlier, um, Body Becoming a Path to Liberation. Uh, Will you give us a sneak peek into it?
0: Well, I write a lot about my story in uh, becoming, uh, becoming trans becoming Latinx, becoming autistic. And I write about the embodiment processes. I write about how I give myself a shot every Sunday of testosterone. I write about the changes that my body has undergone. And I relate those changes uh, racially, uh, gender wise, sexuality wise. I relate it to democracy. Because my argument here is that embodiment is a vision for democracy. And when I change myself, I change the world. When I change myself, I'm in better relationship with you. And when you and I are in better relationship, we can then better relate to our cultural body. And, and I just was lamenting the other day. I was in a hotel watching the news, and I just was lamenting uh, how our society seems to be coming apart at the seams. And what if we were a better embodied cultural body? What if we knew how to practice care and compassion and suffering with one another? I think that our democracy would be in a much better place. And so I talk about that. I talk about migration. I talk about um, motion on a philosophical level and how everything is moving, just like our every body is moving, the internal structures are always moving. And so why do we try to stabilize things? Why do we try to draw a hard line in the sand when movement is all we have? And so I I talk about all these sort of concepts and my story and related to democracy. And then at the end, I added a whole bunch of vignettes about other people talking about embodiment, embodies, because I knew that if we're going to have a better relationship with bodies and if we're going to have a better relationship with our own body, it needs to be more than my narrative to try to displace the danger of a single narrative. So I include other people's vignettes in there. And and then there is a somatic or embodied reflection as the afterword that my partner wrote And I'm hoping that it does something in the world. You know, even if 10 people read it, that's 10 people who are practicing embodiment and 10 people who are leaning into a new vision of democracy. Um, I hope it does something in the world.
1: So you got this organization you're running, you're teaching, you're writing, you're speaking. Um, What else do you got coming up?
0: Well, I take a siesta every Every day. And that's probably something that I look forward to every day. And I take a siesta because um, it's important to take care of myself so that I can continue doing this work. Um, But as of tomorrow, I'm going down to the border uh, in Texas to work with the refugees. I'll be down there for a little bit to help out with the Vote Common Good project that is riding the length of the border, trying to raise awareness to better immigration. practices and policies. Um, And then I'll do my second in-person gig at Elon University in North Carolina. I'm very excited about that. The students have been waiting on me for two years and um, I'm eager to get back with people and get back um, in front of a microphone sharing my story. Uh, But it's really moments like these where we can really practice the right kind of conversation because I don't think that every conversation does the kind of work that I'm wanting to do in the world. Uh, but something like this where I can share my story um, and and tell the good news as I like to say it. Um, so I'm looking forward to more opportunities like that. And then in December, I try to take Sabbath month in December to kind of reflect on what's been happening in the world, reflect on what I've done the past Twelve months, and then sort of lean into the next year, and then in the spring I'll be back teaching at Duke, uh, and we'll start it all over again.
1: Siesta sounds really great each day. <laughs> yeah, is there is there a common time that you you nail down for that?
0: Just whenever I have the the capacity and space, uh, I try to I try to practice spaciousness as much as I can. But that doesn't always happen. You know, people, people are hurting right now. And I try to be attentive and try to practice good care ethics uh, when I'm with people. And so um, it's just kind of when I have the spaciousness and when I can lean into that time.
1: Well, I can, I can guarantee that probably after having a conversation with me, you might want to either take the first one or the second one of the day. So.
0: <laughs> no, this has been good. I'm really, I'm really glad that we had a chance to connect.
1: Well, if you want to stay connected with Dr. Robin and check out the work at activisttheology.com or iRobin.com. The book is Activist Theology. Purchase it wherever books are sold. Uh, Dr. Robin, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. And thank you for your prophetic leadership and and not just calling out the exclusion and injustices of this world, but working alongside the aggressors and their supporters to bring about holistic change.
0: Well, as... As my partner has so poetically put it, there is no separation, and that is why I do the work that I do, even when though even with those who transgress us, uh, because really there's no separation. We are all radically interconnected with one another, and when we realize that, we too can become the prophetic leaders that we've been waiting for.
1: We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including black church studies, rural ministry, and pastoral care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022, apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out CBF.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we'd mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at CBF.net backslash podcast support.